in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Today, I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today from Spokane, Washington, Brian Fry. How you doing, Brian? Good evening, everybody. Doing well. That's great. How is the sunny land of Spokane? Is it sunny? I don't know. I just it's Sunny and Spokane sound good together. Is it cloudy? I don't know. It was a beautiful day today that started at 16 degrees and plateaued at a ripe 38 yeah no thanks that's awful it's all right man the colder it gets the more snow comes later and joining us today is one of our uh, most popular guests on the show we have dj bryant joining us again hello dolly first time to the three timers club i love it i always love a good third time yeah, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, guys. So, if you didn't catch DJ before, small plug, catch the Death Becomes Her episode and the Blue Velvet episode. Both of them are highly downloaded episodes, so this should be no different. But I still don't think people know DJ well enough, so we're going to hit you with a few more questions. Sounds good. Rocky Horror Picture Show has some great costumes in it, and uh, you have done some pretty cool costumes yourself. What is your biggest Halloween costume? So, for those of you who don't know, I am an amateur drag queen, and I'm pretty stoked about my look this year. I'm going to be Little Red Riding Ho. <laughs> Perfect. Nice. And uh, I assume you've got the cape and... Oh, totally. I got the cape. I just need a wolf. Did you get a basket, too? I got a basket full of condoms and dildos. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Uh, you should probably post a picture of that. Oh, definitely I will. That is, oh, that's fantastic. And uh, so, Fry, what about you? You've done some pretty good uh, costume work yourself. You and Jessica do some couples costumes. What about you? Um, I would say that our best costuming was probably in the form of uh, the elusive duo of uh, Where's Waldo and Carmen Sandiego. Uh, I was particularly proud of that one. But um, if I really have to give a nod to one, we were planning on staying in one Halloween and not uh, going out. And then a friend of ours who lived in our neighborhood apartment area called us and said, hey, we're having an impromptu Halloween party. Get your butts over here. And we're like, crap. Okay, we're unprepared. Somehow we threw together, and this is, I completely nod to the fact that this was last minute but i was very impressed with us just ended up um crafting a dress out of a garbage bag and she already had a blonde wig and some face paint to go as lady gaga and i found a ratty old perfectly colored blue towel that i cut a hole in and went as towelie (laughs) (laughs) maybe if i get a little bit high Everybody 
thought that was something we had already prepped and they're like oh you already had costumes and we just kind of did that like shaky nervous laugh like yeah it was uh-huh thanks <laughs> so it's halloween time and it's time for scary movies what movie scared you the most dj if i had to choose one i would say it follows Ooh. mainly because the night like the night I went to go see it at the movie theater, going home, I was coming down a creepy Pittsburgh road and there was a gentleman walking in the middle of the road and it scared the bejesus out of me because I thought it was It Follows. Um, I also really liked the soundtrack in that movie too. Not coincidentally, he also tied you to a chair. It does. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious though, having spent a fair amount of time in Pittsburgh, what road isn't creepy? Well, there's tons of them. The, so the ones that are like in the, like the valleys are a little bit more creepy, like where you're like three levels below the main like high street level, and you're going under bridges, and you okay. know if you if you veer off like. Well, listen, I I've been on Carson at three a.m. So I, The Walking Dead is alive in in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, DJ's right. Under bridges are creepy, and Pittsburgh has more bridges than any city in the world. So there's a lot of creepy. That go to go around. So pick your bridge. Yep. There might be a troll there. <laughs> so so Halloween, scary times. Brian, what about you? I think the the movie at the time that scared me the most was probably Twenty Eight Days Later because I had grown up watching old school zombie films and zombies were supposed to be slow. And when Twenty Eight Days Later came out, I was like. What is with these ultra-fast, rabid zombies thing? I'm not okay with this. So the premise of the fast-mover zombie troubled me greatly. For me, it's The Exorcist. It just, it scared me. Flat out. I laugh when I watch yeah. it. Ugh, it's, it's a <laughs> comedy to me. I, it, I don't know, it gets me. I don't know. Uh, little Girl in Danger and, uh, you know, Possession are, like, like, I don't know. Uh, there's probably another thing to make it a straight tic-tac-toe for me but it, it definitely checks a lot of the boxes also slow build-up like you know like so that like mm-hmm. tension a lot of tension so yeah uh checks all the boxes for me on that one and today we're doing a musical what movie has the best music in it can be a score can be soundtrack what about you dj well like i already said i like the soundtrack for it follows the best score is back to the future <laughs> the power of love okay. Oh man, that wasn't the score. That was a song in it. Oh, the score. So you're going to score the score. But you, okay, so you're so you're deducting like, the soundtrack. Yes, I do like Hugh Lewis in the news. Like, don't get me wrong. Because that was that's where my head went. I was just like, oh no. <laughs> okay, no, the, okay, Back to the Future. That that that's fair on the score then. Uh, Brian, what about you, man? Well, I'm gonna go with the score also, and it would be between Blade Runner and Tron. Ooh, good I choice. Dearly love both of those movies and so their soundtracks are just very iconic to me if i i i'm hard pressed to name you a soundtrack i remember at the time i was really into the 10 things i hate about you soundtrack but i'm i'm a little hard pressed to just pull a a, an actual i mean uh, guardians of the galaxy was a phenomenal soundtrack so there there have been a lot i'm not sure if i just can pin the tail on one specific one and as for me I am a huge fan of the Ramones. You might be able to tell by the theme song is influenced by that straight up good old punk rock music. So I love rock and roll high school. I, I, it's it's uh, it's probably not gonna win awards for being a great constructed written movie, but I love it and I love it's because of the Ramones. Today's movie though, what movie are we gonna do today, DJ? 
We're going to do the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's right. This movie comes out in 1975. It grosses $112.89 million. It accrues this, however, over a long, long run, and it holds the longest theatrical run in history under its belt. So it actually doesn't do well at first, but it grows and grows to be this true cult classic, I think, when you, when you talk about a cult classic. Placing in the box office that year, uh, so again, this is stretched out over a long time, it's number two behind Jaws and number three over One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So again, these are not initial returns. These are stretched out. The number one movie that year, as mentioned, was Jaws. IMDb gives the Rocky Horror Picture Show a 7.4. The critics like it a good bit more, though. The critics give it an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, and the audience gives it an even higher review of 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. When the film first opens, it had uh, traditional screenings, and it bombed. And Meatloaf, who plays Eddie in the movie, attended an opening week performance with director Jim Sharman in the Midwest, and the theater was completely empty. In the mid-70s, midnight screenings became popular, and it was like a word-of-mouth thing where the audiences might enjoy this film. And so it started to grow and went from city to city to city and became so popular that it is shown continually in theaters since 1975, making it the longest theatrical run in history. DJ, this is quite an unusual cinematic phenomenon had you seen this one before? What was your takeaway on it? Yes, I had seen this like uh, probably back in high school or so. I had I was hanging around like the drama kids, the thespians, if you will, and I had never seen it prior to that. And they dragged me to one of these screenings that they do the live reenactment, and I was just awestruck at the time. Like I, so you saw the play first? I saw no, not the play, the actual movie, but with the actors acting oh, inside it. it. Yeah. Um, and I was just awestruck. Like, I looked to my friend. I was like, what did I just watch? And she's like, it's theater of the absurd. It doesn't mean anything. Just enjoy it. <laughs> like, okay, I do. So, yes. And what was it like coming back to it now? Like, has it held up for you over your multiple rewatches? It has. And, like, it seems like every time I watch it now, I, I, um, I get more and more from it. Like, I, I find more things in the plot or in, like, hidden in the background of the story that kind of helps it make a little more sense. Like, it doesn't completely make that much sense to me at this point but it's 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 getting there maybe by the time i'm 80 i'll i'll completely understand it <laughs> uh the, and uh what about you brian had you seen the rocky horror picture show before uh first time i had ever seen it it was something that i had had a couple near misses with there used to be or there probably still is a old garage turned bar venue in durham uh, I ended up seeing The Big Lebowski, the musical there, and we missed seeing Rocky Horror there one time. And then I've just had a couple other near misses with the with the movie. Yeah, it was one of those things where I jumped on the opportunity because I was like, all right, I got to see this movie. You know, as a movie fan, it's it's an omission to have not seen this yet. And I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, I was like, what the <laughs> f did I just watch? I, I, Jess was laughing at me because of my facial expressions just because I was like, all right, well, that's a thing. But uh, I kind of sat on it for a while, let it digest, and then rewatched. And I can't imagine even at 80 I would get all the nuances to this movie. Yeah, I don't know. It's It was it was a thing. For me, I watched this one probably, I was about 10th grade, so I was in, I was in high school. I believe VH1 had picked it up around this time. And I remember watching it, it was late, and I remember thinking, like, what is this on TV? Like, this is a lot for TV. And um, I'm just sitting there going, like, man, 
I, I feel like I'm getting away with watching something here. And like, it was really off the wall. And so uh, it was, it was definitely one of those uh, moments where it was surreal for me because again, it, it's a movie made to push buttons for sure. So it was, it was an experience. I really don't have too many other ones like that where you watch it alone being like, I know I'm probably shouldn't be watching this right now, <laughs> but I watched it anyway and I had a good time with it. And uh, I've seen it on TV actually, probably I think VH1 comes back to it periodically and I pick it up here and there again. But to actually sit down and watch the whole thing, this is only my second time doing that. Okay. So it's been a, quite a while since I've watched it all. And so I like DJ where I, I, I thought maybe I had just never really sat down and paid full attention to really get it all. And after watching it, I, I, I was left with questions. But I had a good time. I had a good time with it every time. And I, I was probably watching it less for shock and just having a fun time this time and so in in the end I, it's not as shocking as i remembered maybe i'm desensitized now i didn't like totally blow my mind for the shock value but uh it seemed shocking the first time but i think it had more to do with it it was on cable tv so yeah. it's a fun movie to come back to and it clearly has a big following we're gonna break this movie down further but there was a warning here there are spoilers that lie ahead so if you don't want to know what happens in the rocky horror picture show tune out Watch the movie come back and enjoy the rest of this episode. We'll be back after these messages. President Donald J. Trump here from the White House. You know America gets so tired of listening to all the fake news out there. They're always treating me very unfairly. It's shameful, really. It's a shame I get so tired of all the news that I've taken to listening to podcasts. There are a lot of fake podcasts out there, too. Pretty much any of them from CNN. But one that all of America seems to be able to agree on, including myself, is the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Stop worrying about the investigations, what's going on in Russia, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, and give them a shiny gold five-star review. Comment below, let them know how to make the show even greater, like them on Facebook, reach out to them at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Maybe someday they will be lucky enough to review my tremendous acting performances and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. I was a terrific star of that movie, and the Academy Awards rigged the Oscars that year to exclude me. It's too bad, really. It's very bad. But you know what isn't bad? The Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Thank you, America. And you're welcome. All right. And we're back. Welcome back. There will be spoilers that lie ahead for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so this is your final warning. DJ, for those who haven't seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show since 1975, refresh people's memories. What happens? Okay. Let's get into it. So the movie begins with Lip singing science fiction double feature, and the audience is introduced to a narrator, later to be explained as a criminologist, who tells us, the viewers, a tale about a newly engaged couple, Brad Majors and Janet Weiss, who find themselves lost and stranded with a flat tire on a cold and rainy night on August the 8th, 1974. Seeking a telephone, the couple walk to a nearby castle where they discover a group of strange and outlandish people who are holding an annual Transylvanian convention. They are soon swept into the world of Dr. Frankenfurter, a self-proclaimed sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. The ensemble of convention attendees also includes Frankenfurter's servants, Riff Raff, and his sister Magenta, and a groupie named Columbia. In his lab, Frank claims to have discovered the secret to life itself. His creation, Rocky, is brought to life. The ensuing celebration is soon interrupted by Eddie, an ex-delivery boy who both Frank and Columbia have a personal history with, as well as a partial brain donor to Rocky, who rides out of a deep freeze on a motorcycle. 
Eddie then proceeds to seduce Columbia while getting the Transylvanians dancing and singing and intrigue Brad and Janet. When Rocky starts dancing and enjoying the performance, a jealous Frank kills Eddie with an axe. Columbia screams in horror, devastated by Eddie's death. Frank justifies killing Eddie as a mercy killing to Rocky, and they depart to the bridal suite. Brad and Janet are shown to separate bedrooms, where each is visited and seduced by Frank, who poses as Brad when visiting Janet, and then Janet when, vis when visiting Brad. Janet, upset and emotional, wanders off to look for Brad, who she discovers via a television monitor is in bed with Frank. She then discovers Rocky cowering in his birth tank, hiding from Riff Raff, who has been tormenting him. While tending to his wounds, Janet becomes intimate with Rocky, as Magenta and Columbia watch from their bedroom monitor. After discovering his creation as missing, Frank returns to the lab with Brad and Riff Raff, where Frank learns that an intruder has entered the building. Brad and Janet's old high school science teacher, Dr. Everett Scott, has come looking for his nephew, Eddie. Frank suspects that Dr. Scott investigates UFOs for the government. Upon learning of Brad and Janet's connection to Dr. Scott, Frank suspects them of working for him. Brad denies any knowledge of it, and Dr. Scott assures Frank that Brad is totally not involved in UFOs. Frank, Dr. Scott, Brad, and Riff Raff then discover Janet and Rocky together under the sheets in Rocky's birth tank, upsetting Frank and Brad. Magenta returns to the reunion by sounding a massive gong, stating that dinner is prepared. Rocky and the guests share an uncomfortable dinner, which they soon realize has been prepared from Eddie's mutilated remains. Janet returns screaming to Rocky's arms, provoking Frank to chase her through the halls. Janet, Brad, Dr. Scott, Rocky, and Columbia all meet in Frank's lab, where Frank captures them with the Medusa transducer, transforming them into nude statues. After dressing them in cabaret costume, Frank unfreezes them and they perform a live cabaret floor show, complete with an RKO tower, a swimming pool, and Frank as their leader. Riff Raff and Magenta interrupt the performance, re revealing themselves and Frank to be aliens from the planet Transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. They stage a coup and announce a plan to return to their home planet. In the process, they kill Columbia and Frank, who has failed his mission. An enraged Rocky gathers Frank in his arms, climbs to the top of the tower, and plunges to his death in the pool below. Riff Raff and Magenta release Brad and Janet and Dr. Scott before the castle lifts off from Earth. The survivors are then left crawling in the dirt, and the narrator concludes that the human race is equivalent to insects crawling on the planet's surface, lost in time and lost in space and in meaning. The end. Well, that made sense. I know that. So, uh, Brian, what do you think about this completely coherent plot? <laughs> it was easier to follow with them reading it. <laughs> I feel I, I feel embarrassed to have been confused the first time with the uh, the succinctness of that. Well. I just can't make total heads of tails. I, I find myself thinking this has to mean something, but you know, like whether it be somebody getting turned into statues or whether it's a clothing thing or whether it's the midnight visits from Dr. Frankenfurt or whether it's, you know, there's a lot of points in here. I feel like they're trying to say something, but then again, I'm wondering, I took an art class in, in college uh, to take a side tangent here. And I, as an architect, everything has to have a reason, a very rational about like, you know, you know uh, the program informs the art of the building and the aesthetic of it. And so one of the things that I had a hard time with, and he's told me like, you need to just, they're trying a different way of exploring space. They're trying to think of a different way of putting medium on, on the canvas. And they're just like, they're just trying out stuff. And like, I was like, yeah, but what does that abstract stuff mean? Like, what does yeah. it mean to them? He's like, you just need to back off, man. Like, <laughs> he's like, you're thinking way too much. And I have, I have a feeling 
Rocky Horror Picture Show could just be my art teacher telling me, you're thinking too you're much, thinking man. You're thinking too much. Back yeah. off. What about you, DJ? <laughs> well, I think one of the issues here, and I think one thing that's difficult for a lot of people in understanding this is obviously there's a lot of moving parts and pieces going on here. So it's not like you can watch this once and immediately get it. The other issue that complicates it is that a lot of the plot is communicated to us via the songs. And so unless you're really paying attention to the songs, which I think a lot of us kind of get hypnotized by the dance or the beats or what's happening in the scene, you miss a lot of information. Mm -hmm. And it really, so for me, like it really took like looking up the lyrics to the songs and reading through it. I was like, oh, okay, I get this now. I still don't understand this. Like, (laughs) why are the aliens there? Why are they, what's significant about like life, like creating new life? Like, I don't get that, but. No, it's a good point. This is a movie that, Again, empty opened at an empty theater, and people didn't really watch it. It looked doomed. It was ignored by the critics. And perhaps it was even the black and white poster with Dr. Frankenfurter in garters and heels and no shirt. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's not appealing. It, it, like, it's, not, it's not rendered in a nice way. If you've ever seen the original poster, by chance, have you? Yeah. And uh, the second film poster was really provocative. It had these, it has these iconic red lips that are painted with everything else black. And it has a tagline of a different set of Jaws. And as we saw that Jaws was the number one movie in 75. And perhaps this spoofing poster played a big part of it. Fun fact, the lips on the poster are not that of the ones in the movie. It's the lips of Playboy model Laura Lee Shark. Oh, really? Uh, so another Jaws connection. So okay. Jaws to Laura Lee Shark. What is it that made this grow into what it became, DJ? In your opinion, obviously none of us were there in 75. I think it, like... Kind of like you said, like, you know, it's different whenever whenever you go to a movie and it's not well attended, you feel free to kind of to talk back to the movie or goof around with it. And this movie actively engages the viewer in that respect. And there is this whole kind of subculture of traditions that have been built up, like things you do when you go see it, like certain moments when you say certain lines and things like that. Like I could run through them all like I have them written down at the end of my little narration here. But it is, I think that helped it kind of become this kind of cult phenomenon is that once so many people kind of saw it as this oddball kind of thing and this kind of subculture formed around it, it just began kind of like a, a snowball rolling down a mountain, just bigger and bigger and bigger. Interesting. And it was a business move that they decided to do this with Pink Flamingos in 1972, which was a shortlisted movie at one point that I think you suggested, uh, DJ. Still haven't seen it. I'm a little intimidated by it. Um you should watch it. <laughs> um, Reefer Madness is another one. Uh, these mo- these mo- these movies were making money at midnight showings, and Fox executive Tim Deegan was able to talk distributors at midnight sc- into going to midnight screenings, starting in New York City on April Fool's Day in '76, and things started to grow across New York City. And it it was in in New York City thing, and apparently the LGBT community grabbed onto this one early, and, and it grew from there. But then it grew beyond that into sexual liberation and androgyny, and people were dressing up to come to the show, and it, it just suddenly grew again to capturing outsiders. The punks loved it. Horror enthusiasts took to it. Theater nerds, musical fans, science fiction fans, and. Turns out this was a good movie all along and they just didn't know how to push it. And or people weren't ready for it. Even Ebert dismissed it as a a long-running social phenomenon more than a movie. He only gives it two and a half stars and says like it's it's just more about the people who like it than about than Mm. it is about itself. I won't go there, would you? 
Brian? No. Yeah, what, what would you say, Brian? Uh, no, I wouldn't go there. I think that there is all... Th- this is one of the things I have against, I guess, modern-day critical scoring of movies. I think that just because it's not your particular cup of tea doesn't mean that it deserves a lower grade. So, you know, first time I watched it, this was so scattered to me. I was like, all right, well, you know, like I said, that was that was a thing. Second time I watched it, paid a little bit more attention, got a little bit more into it. There was a point in time where every time I had anything that rhymed with Janet and I, Justin and I'd be talking, I would say Janet after it just on purpose, you know, like off the cuff. And it's it's movies that do things like that to you that that's an an awesome thing. So I don't I don't feel like you can judge something like that. It's it's an art piece, you know. It's it's like someone drawing a squiggly line on a paper and saying, "Oh my God, look at this." I mean, if everybody believes it's awesome, then I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good point. And the, the fanaticism has really grown. Uh, not only do patrons dress up, they bring props. They look. They do lookalike contests. I mean, they go all out. I mean, if you look online on Google, like Rocky Horror Picture Show fans, I mean, you're going to find all kinds of colorful images out there. And so, I mean, but people go to screenings now and they throw rice at the wedding scene. They'll bring water pistols and squirt them. And during the rain scene, newspapers, people bring those up for like the front middle of the roads to shield themselves from the rain. They bring flashlights and cigarette lighters for the over at the Frankenstein place, the rubber gloves. During the creation speech, people snap on rubber gloves during that number. They put noisemakers to applaud uh, Frank's creation. They do toilet paper at Scott's brand. So they say, great Scott, and they throw paper towel rolls. That one's stretching it a little bit, admittedly. Confetti uh, at the uh, reprise of the Transylvanians. They toast. Uh, They actually have like cooked toast that people throw around you know when they do the dinner and uh the party hats when they do the happy birthday to rocky they have bells uh when they hear a doorbell uh cards anyway the list goes on and on it's 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 elaborate i mean uh, there's nothing like this is there dj oh no i mean nothing i've seen before and also if, if it's your first time going to see it they will draw a giant v on your head for virgin and they will haze you in some form or fashion when i went i think I had to eat a Twinkie off another person's crotch. Wow. Fresh fresh Twinkie, I hope. A fresh Twinkie, yeah. Okay, it was yeah. freshly unwrapped. Okay. Yeah. My- <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me, I would like to kind of compare this to uh, kind of a, uh, a plot point, plot device used in one of my favorite pieces of literature. There's a, there's a book uh, by Neil Gaiman called American Gods, and they've recently made a, a TV show-ish thing off of it but uh read the book but in it basically the point he's trying to make is that any god no matter what it is is only as powerful as the people that believe in it so you could say it's like the u.s dollar or the internet or anything can be a god as long as somebody worships it or believes in it so i feel like this has that power like there are there's such a following for it that it is, you know, almost a living, breathing thing at that point. And as long as people like it, as long as people adore it, as long as people are interested in it, it'll continue to thrive. And be respectful if you go to a theater and you see it. Obviously, there's a lot of messy stuff involved here. Apparently, 
It's another thing to make sure the toast is buttered when you throw it around the, the room. And <laughs> theaters have uh, said that the, the sticky, slippery butter that gets all over the place, all over the, so not not so kind. So uh, be respectful. Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to chastise people for throwing unbuttered bread. Like, do it right, guys. Oh, put, well, put okay. the butter and okay. not margarine. It better be butter. Oh yeah, yeah. None of that. I can't oh, believe it's it, not butter. And and they know. They know if it's if it's. I can't believe it's not butter. You'll be called out. <laughs> yeah, Fabio or not, it's uh, I, you know, n- no margarine in this place. To, to your point, Brian, I want to kind of circle back to that again because I think it's it's very compelling what you kind of brought up about the issue of the God and not only just the following of people, but the rituals that have been built up around the God. Like it is very, it's heavily ritualized. Like the whole actual viewing of this this movie in public. I mean, it's a movie designed to break the rules. And so, I mean, it goes against the establishment at the time. I mean, uh, Dr. Frankenfurter is a pansexual. He's sleeping with everybody. Uh, he's This is not necessarily stuff in the 70s that is on front page news and stuff like that. And things have changed quite a bit since then. So, again, my first time watching this was of utter shock. I was like, wow, he's just going for it with this guy and oh wait now he likes the ladies too and like as like he's sleeping with everybody and like and everybody's having a good time this is one it's it's pretty much an orgy castle and it's one of the things where you come back to it though and the shock's not there anymore what is there though is the music's really good like it's just downright fun it takes stuff from the 50s it takes references from old science fiction and other old horror movies that are b movies and stuff like that and it hits the right notes at just being fun. I think that's why everyone keeps coming back to it again and again and again. Why don't we go into the cast rundown, Brian? Absolutely. Totally not on the right screen for it, but that's all right. All right. Uh, we'll start from the top and go with Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter, a scientist. Susan Sarandon as Janet Weiss, not Vice. Barry Bostwick as Brad Majors, Richard O'Brien as Riff Raff, Patricia Quinn as Magenta, Nell Campbell as Columbia, Jonathan Adams as Dr. Everett V. Scott, Peter Henwood as Rocky Horror, a creation, Meatloaf as Eddie. Is, is, is a movie just instantly better with Meatloaf? I like Meatloaf. I think mashed potatoes are. <laughs> <laughs> if you can put Meatloaf... I feel like he was the original Eddie Izzard. No disrespect to Eddie Izzard. <laughs> Charles Gray as the criminologist and Jeremy Newsom as Ralph Hapshit. I'll just stop there. Sure. Impressive cast. This movie takes a lot of people from the play version, and they actually looked at doing a heavier cast of people. Uh, Mick Jagger wanted to play Dr. Frankenfurter in this film, and I could kind of see it. I would have backed that. Oh, I'll also say that uh, hats off to this cast for being the only one that I've read on this show where I didn't feel like I massacred someone's name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's pronounced Frankenfurter. It's good. It's Lowoff. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> it's not Meatloaf. It's Lowoff. And Vice. Yeah. Meatloaf. <laughs> So in a radio interview with the Fresh Air, uh, Tim Curry said that he got to meet Prince Charles and Princess Diana because she loved Curry so much in this film that Curry recalled when he met Diana that uh, he was placed at the end of her long receiving line and Prince Charles was only vague, vaguely recognizing him and kind of passing him on. And then Diana like, was really excited to smile at him and said, uh, the Rocky Horror quite completed my education and uh, she was a big Curry fan in that. So uh, he, he, it meant a lot to him that the princess liked it. 
Uh, what, are, what are some other fun cast things that you found in DJ? Well, Susan Sarandon was sick for most of it because they were filming in the cold and wet. And the castle they were filming in was also cold and wet. It was leaking. And they had one room to retreat to with heat and warmth. Um, they all kind of like did tag team, like who got in there. Um, and a lot of the cast members say that she probably should have gone to a doctor. She was in rough shape, but she stuck it through and made it happen. So like that's a champ. her. Yep, she played it, played it through. I was uh, I was shocked about Sarandon. I I had no idea she was in this. Uh, I I knew about Tim Curry just because I, I feel like that one was widely publicized, and he's kind of the face of the movie. I didn't really know many of the other people in this movie outside of Meatloaf. But doing a bunch of research on them, uh, I found out you know several of them are in other movies I've liked, and that's just been kind of a, a genesis project, I suppose. Absolutely. Tim Curry, going back to him, on that same interview in Fresh Air, that uh, he said playing Dr. Frankenfurt, he actually started with a German accent, but he thought it was uh, too cliché. And that when he heard a woman on the bus speaking high-exaggerated English that reminded him of the Queen... Uh, Queen Elizabeth, he combined the elements of his mother's telephone voice with Queen Elizabeth, and, <laughs> Fantastic. And, and it results in Dr. Frankenfurters. And so he said his mother, for the record, liked the movie. She was a pretty hip lady, and she enjoyed the show, That uh, despite its racy content, although she preferred his performance in Pirates and Penzance more. So, <laughs> And the Queen actually came to that performance. As I mentioned before, Tim Curry and Meatloaf Little Nell and Richard O'Brien all come from the stage performance. And that's really interesting. It's something I criticize a lot of movies for that go into doing modern musicals. I often think that you just got somebody who's a big name actor and you plugged him into this to get butts in the seat. And yeah, it got butts in the seat. But they can't sing as well usually. Like, I'm going to go pick on a movie Les Mis. I was did, say did, Les Mis. did either of you guys see Les Mis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it... Uh, no, it was, a, it was a hard pass for me. Well, it, it's problematic because half the cast can sing okay, and half of them can't sing at all, and then out of nowhere there's this character named Eponine, and she gets on the stage, she gets one number, and she belts it, and she's awesome, and she's on the Broadway show, and she's a nobody as far as the acting world goes, and she's the only one, in my opinion, who can like hang... I mean, Hathaway did a fine job, and... You know, but I mean, really, there's people who sing at a very, very, very high level. And so as much as I can kind of see Mick Jagger doing this, I'm really glad that they took all the stage people who helped shape these characters. Because when you're an actor on stage, you're helping to create this character and bring it to life. And you're, you're a pro at it. You're doing it multiple times. And, and so this is just a, an elevation of that. And so uh, my note is it works really well here. Movies do that more often. <laughs> I know I should know Barry Boswick too, but I only know him from this. Uh, I mean, it's been a zillion years since I've seen Spy Hard. I know my my wife watches a lot of Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, but I've never sat down and. Oh wow! I just looked up an image of him now. He looks different. <laughs> oh, I know, right? He looks like someone you'd see on like the A Team. Totally, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what Helen Keller versus the Night Wolves is, but uh, I'm interested. That sounds good. a little interesting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, he, oh, he was in the modern day classic, The Scorpion King Four: oh, Quest for Power. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that's <sighs> clearly his career has been been working out for him. 
Right. <laughs> he is in a lot of stuff. It looks like he does anywhere between like four to six projects a year. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, he's, he's not without work, even if they are small parts. Steve Martin auditions for the role of Brad. DJ, do you want to see Steve Martin playing Brad? No, I did recast him possibly as a narrator, but we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. And uh, Vincent Price was offered the role of the criminologist, but he turned it down due to scheduling conflicts and was interested in the role, Ooh. though. So He would have been good. Yeah, quite. <laughs> can, can I make a... I want to make a statement about this movie, and I just want to know your all's true or false on this. After watching the time warp number... Uh, that's how far I was in the movie when I made the statement to, to my wife. I said, this movie looks like it was way more fun to be in than watch. Well, I again, like it was hard work because they were all cold and, you know, multiple takes being what it is. That pool scene, like when they're swimming in that pool, that is a very cold pool and everybody is shivering. And it's uh, so I don't know. It's the, the reports say it was pretty miserable pretty hard work to, pretty, pretty hard work to get through but it's one of those things where so often you're you're right the the joyous tones of the music and stuff like that it does make it look like it would be fun yeah um the set had uh, no bathrooms either as you pointed out uh, so it was it was super cold super wet and leaky but uh no bathrooms makes it no fun so off to the pee corner <laughs> <laughs> well one of the one of the things i do miss about high school is as much as I wasn't a huge fan of doing the musicals when we did, you know, Drama Club, um, God, I, I missed the actual production of the thing. So w- whatever we were doing, I miss the camaraderie and the fun you have while doing it. And when I was watching this, I was like, you know, this is a pretty off-the-wall thing. And I, God, my folks still have record, uh, recordings of performances I did that I have never watched and I have no desire to, <laughs> but I look back on actually doing it fondly because of everything that it took to put it together. If you had to be in the show, Brian, what character are you playing? Drama club, go. Oh, no, I just want to be one of the, uh, I want to be the, the peanut gallery. Okay, I'll be in riffraff. Like just, I, 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 I want to do that. Uh, I want to do the creepy, silky guy. <laughs> Plus, you get to also kick off the time uh, warp. So no, it's it, it's just all those people that get to basically say, "Hey, I was in Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I basically just did one dance number and then peanut galleried it the rest of the time." <laughs> and DJ? Oh, Doctor Frankenfurter. Perfect. Yeah. But to your point, Brian, like I would have loved to have been on the set hanging out with Tim Curry because I think that would have been fun. Sure. And I should point out, this is our third Tim Curry effort so far this year on this show. We did Three Musketeers. No, I'm struggling to think of which other. I was like, I remember Three Musketeers. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, it. Did you do it? No, no. Uh, no, we didn't do it. Not only is this DJ's third time, this is Tim Curry's third time. Third movie for him. So he did Clue and he did <laughs> Three Musketeers from, from the show. So, uh, yes, that was smooth. <laughs> so... Let's talk soundtrack. DJ, this is an impeccable soundtrack. What do you think about this? Um, I love this soundtrack. It's really good. Top three songs for me are going to be Time Warp, Sweet Transvestite, and I Can Make You a Man. I should also mention all of these were written by Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff, which I think is a pretty compelling story. He was very interested in glam rock and kind of the scene at the time. That's right. There are glam rock influences here, too. Oh, yeah. Heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But there's that old roots rock. 
in there as well, mm-hmm. uh, which that stuff just strikes a chord in me. I, I always love that stuff. Uh, Brian, what about you, man? What are some high points uh, from the soundtrack? So my top three were over at Frankenstein Place, Time Warp, and I'm Going Home. Uh, I'm Going Home being probably the one that I felt had the most feeling in the movie. That's a fair statement. And maybe these are basic picks, but I'm going to go with the Time Warp is definitely my favorite. And uh, damn it, Janet is <laughs> just, it's, it gets in your head. You, you, I, leave, I leave doing it. And then uh, Science Fiction Double Feature with the lips at the beginning. And funny story about that, Mary and I were watching this, and the lips are on the screen, and they're yellow, and and everything's black, and I'm sitting there going like, I really remember these being red. And then, and and so I'm sitting there, I get through the whole thing, and I was just like, I don't remember this being this way, and so I'm just going with it. They get to the church scene, which is the opening scene, and everything's very desaturated, and I'm like something's not right does it get i remember this being a very colorful movie i was like maybe it's like the wizard of oz <laughs> and so we watched all the way through the church scene and they get to a sign of like a billboard behind them and i know for a fact that that is red and then i realize something's not right i go down and i jostle the component cords on the dvd player and uh sure enough uh the red had just been slightly knocked adjusted so i, I went back and i watched the red lips from the beginning <laughs> so i watched everything again from the beginning and so Turns out it's not as good when the lips are yellow. They're not, they're not as enticing. Figures. Yeah, let's go through the soundtrack. Science fiction, double feature. Great way to kick things off. It's one of my high points in the movie. A lot of references to other movies that are in there, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, Flash Gordon, The Invisible Man, King Kong from 33, It Came from Outer Space, Dr. X, Forbidden Planet, Tarantula, uh, Invasion of the... T- faster, Russell, faster. Traffids, Curse of the Demon, and When the Worlds Collide. <laughs> so... So many movies are referred to in this. I haven't seen hardly any of these, so it doesn't really... The, the references aren't connecting for me, but I love that, that the people who love it are enthusiastic about this right off the bat. It shows you where on the sleeve, right off the beginning, what this movie is born out of. Brian, damn it, Janet, what do you take on this one? I will eventually get in trouble for knowing this song because my mother-in-law's name is Janet, <laughs> and I feel like I'm going to execute the song frequently around her now and sooner or later just might hit me it, it really gets in your head like this is this is the one that i'll be singing like three or four days later amongst other ones but this one just continues to pop back into my head so and i love um, richard o'brien and patricia quinn standing there with these droll faces and everybody else around them's joyous and happy and they just kind of have this monotone somber like janet yeah did you see Tim Curry in the background too? Yes. Yeah. Yes. First time I ever noticed that. So does it remind you of any kind of paintings that first scene? Oh yeah. Oh reference? yeah. Yes. Um, old man pitchfork. Um, American Gothic. Yeah, American Gothic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 They definitely are playing on that. That's so much fun. I love um, when they do that. Uh, there's a light over at the Frankenstein place. I like this one a lot. It's just a. It's a. I like the like resonance that they kind of have in there like as they look to the light of the Frankenstein place and then they look up to the window some good uh, these are actually some I'm not going to pick this for my best shots so I don't have I don't have to say I don't have to hold back here but this is actually some of my favorite cinematography in the and, movie really yeah like when you like when they're first coming up there and they're approaching they got their little they got their little newspapers over their heads and stuff like that <laughs> so uh, I, I, I love it so DJ the time warp the time warp well this is like the like one of the essential songs in this movie like 
You know, they've all just been welcomed into the, the creepy Frankenstein castle. Uh, Riff Raff is escorting them into this room. He goes to adjust a clock, which is actually a coffin with a body in it, an old uh, uh, a skeleton. And then they break into song and dance. And I just, I love how at the end, like, Brad kind of dismisses it as like, it's this kind of cultural phenomenon. They want to be polite, not offend these people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're probably just going to do some more cultural dances. Just don't worry about it, Janet. We'll be fine. And So typical, like, don't worry about it. <laughs> and then I love the whole, like, refrain when, like, the, um, the narrator explains the steps to the dance itself. Yes. And, like, he breaks it down like an old school, like, 19. 19- that is one of the f- best parts. I love it. The interruptions from Charles Gray coming in. It's just a jump to the right. <laughs> yeah. Did I get that right? A jump. Hands on your hips. Yeah. <laughs> it's a jump to the left and then a step to the right. And then you put your hands on your hips. And then you bend in tight, do the pelvic thrust. And a bubble I get a little fuzzy on that one yeah, too. Yeah. But I've been, I've been fact checked. Thank you. Sweet transvestite. This one was also in your top three. I love this one. It's so good. I don't have much words about like the kind of lyrics about it. I mean, obviously he's kind of explaining his somewhat life story. We don't kind of get from him yet that he's an alien, but we figure that out much later. It's just such a sexy song and the way Tim Curry does it with so much damn confidence. Like I just, I love it. The whole thing when he just comes down the elevator, the doors fling open, Janet screams. And then, yeah, it's just, it's outrageous. Bravado, bravado, bravado. He's, he owns it. And I think it's interesting. You see on him that he has a tattoo that says boss. And it lets you know right away that Frank's in charge. And it's one of those things that uh, he does not let Brad or Eddie or Dr. Scott or anybody take his masculinity away from him, despite the fact that he's cross-dressed. Dr. Frankenfurter runs the show. And uh, nobody's going to be disrupting his norm, which is no norm. <laughs> so, And this song establishes that... Right away. Right off the bat. Brian, any thoughts on that one? No, I was going to say that I feel like that really started to set the tone for the rest of the movie. Time Warp and that kind of combined to uh, to really knock off what you can expect from the rest of this movie. And uh, it's, I mean, I got to say, I think it's kind of where the fun starts, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, well, Time Warp and then that, but you're right, back to back for sure. Well, I mean, but they're, they're right on top of each other. So it's like that's sort of the... Uh, and now what you got into. Yeah. It goes from being like, this is weird to like, it got weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just got weird. Yeah. Uh, make you a man. DJ? This is a good one. So this is one that is uh, sung mainly by Dr. Frankenfurter, where he's uh, kind of um, talking about his creation, uh, Rocky, and the various exercise routines that he's going to have him do that will make him a man, basically, or keep his manly physique. It's, I don't know, Peter Henwood, I believe this is the actor's name? I think so. Is a beautiful, beautiful man. And so it's just, this song is really just to look at his body and just to marvel at it. So I'm okay with it. I don't mind it. For me, this is this number uh, drags a little bit because you've come off of the time warp. Yes. Uh, and you've come off of Sweet Transvestite. We're, we're going big, we're going big. And this, this, one, this one slows things down a little bit for us. So when Eddie comes in, then I feel like he breaks through the wall and like he's a, he's a jilt of energy. But it comes to an abrupt end as he's murdered. Hot Patootie slash Bless My Soul, performed by Eddie and the Transylvanians. I love Eddie. I wish he had been in the movie more. Unfortunately, he meets an early death. Uh, Richard O'Brien brought the brought out the music of Meatloaf saying saying it's okay to flub a few lines. No one ever does this right on stage. So 
But then he came out super sharp and nailed everything correctly right away. He looked at it and replied, what's the problem? DJ, hot patootie. I like it. It's good. I I, I don't know. Like This is one of those songs where I, it kind of, they lose me in it. Like, And then Eddie gets killed mysteriously somewhat. Like, I feel like it ends abruptly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's a tone shift, as, as what Brian was saying. We're having fun. And it's like, oh. Oh, here's a little bit of murder. Yeah, there's murder involved here. Uh, <laughs> Who doesn't want just a little bit of murder? <laughs> yeah. All right. So continuing with the soundtrack, Brian. Um, touch a touch a touch me. And then Eddie. What do you like about these songs here? Um, I don't have a whole lot to add to either of those, really. Uh, a lot of these were kind of... Um, nook and cranny songs that i'm not belittling just that they were it's like making a song just saying what's going on at that time you know what i mean like i wouldn't call them big iconic pieces of this movie for me they pick the energy up and oh really i see that yeah like again eddie eddie comes in his motorcycle he's running people off the ramp i mean (laughs) uh and that's so you're saying that these are filler for you brian like the the three eddie numbers i man i don't want to call it filler that's just a discredit to it um it's just it's more like these aren't things that stick out in the movie for me and then as far as touch me goes that was probably the most irritating song in the movie for me you don't like little nell's high-pitched voice (laughs) uh there there's just there's a whole lot to it that i was just like all right i'm i'm good can can this stop now So we go into Planet, Schmanet, Janet, Wise Up, Janet Weiss. This is another one that got in my head for the first time this time, and I really like this one. I had not uh, I had not remembered this one and the calamity of the steps turning into a ramp and the, the wheelchair flying up things. Again, we're having a lot of fun, and things have gone full-out zany here after uh, Brad and Janet have some infidelity and stuff like that. And so uh, hijinks is ensuing again here. Is this one fun for you, DJ? It is, yeah, like... You know, I kind of, I'm going to echo back what's been said. Like, for me, the high points occur early on in the movie, and I don't really get a similar kind of feeling song towards the end. Like, so you're already, you're, you're starting already, to fade. I'm, yeah, I'm going down the hill now. That's interesting, because I have that take, but after the, they're turned into statues. Because mm. once, they, once they go into the next world, that's when I, I also start to go like, wait, what? Brian, what about you? Are you are you fading with DJ at this point, or are you still on board? Oh, I'll definitely agree that the high point of this movie is at the beginning, or we're close to the beginning, with uh, Time Warp and uh, Sweet Transvestite. But, um, I mean, there are a couple up numbers in here, but I do, like, I, I had a harder time with some of them because of the high-pitched nature of them. I didn't feel like they were as... Uh, catchy and i didn't feel like the dancing was was nearly as you I, I feel like time warp was just too hard to follow up okay okay so you're with dj then you're starting to fade now we've turned into statues and we come on the other side planet hot dog again i like this one a fair bit but then i start to fade for rose tent my world and uh don't dream it be it and um wild and untamed thing these are this is where i'm starting to really fade and dj you're dj you're not in your head yeah yeah and i probably won't go into those as much and i'm sorry if you love these songs but i just can't get excited for this one as much for me the movie the first time i watched this i was just like enticed by the whole thing and then i was confused like i literally thought i went away for the commercial break and missed something important to the plot the second time i was just like i'm not interested in this this doesn't make any sense and then coming back to it and really studying it now i'm sitting there going like really want to like this part of it but it's just really hard i liked it so much better when they were on earth yeah 
And then Brian, you said you like I'm going home. Yeah, I feel like that was the 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 song with the most feeling. Yeah. So, what do we think about director film? Sorry, the film is based on the Rocky Horror Show, which is a stage play written by Richard O'Brien, who created it from his love of classic science fiction B horror movies. He is also riff raff in the movie. So this movie gets credited for being Tim Curry, Tim Curry, Tim Curry, because he's awesome. But Richard O'Brien wrote this while being out of work as an actor. Pretty good, uh, pretty productive uh, bout of unemployment, wouldn't you say, DJ? I would definitely agree with that. Like, I think, yeah, it's awesome that he did this and he made it happen. Yeah, he was trying to play off of Steve Reeves muscle flips from the 50s, putting rock and roll music that fueled his musical inspiration, and then glam rock, as DJ had mentioned. It all comes into this at the right way at the right time. So O'Brien showed a portion of the unfinished script to the Australian director, Jim Sharman, who decided to direct it at at the small experimental space in the upstairs Royal Court Theatre in London. Sharman would also bring in production designer Brian Thompson. The original creative team was then rounded out by costume designer Susan Blaine and musical director Jim Hartley, and the stage producer, Michael White, who was all brought in to produce this. We're going to say produced by Lou Alder, Michael White. Kind of the culminating event brings it all together. The director, the costuming, the sets, everything. Yeah. Again, the studios came. So all these people were together. So they brought this stage crew into the movie world, which I, I already, I've already praised. But the studios wanted a much larger budget. They wanted a bigger cast. And it was... Charmin insisted upon keeping the original cast with no compromise and accepted a much smaller budget and agreed on the American actors as the roles because this movie said you got to have some Americans in there. So Brad and Janet became American because it was a very British, you know, grouping beforehand. And so Tim Curry, Richard O'Brien, Patricia Quinn, and Lil Nell were all created from their original productions. Meatloaf did the Los Angeles uh, production hmm. as well. And so... That brought all everybody under the roof here together. So, uh, Brian, is it? Uh, I, I talked about it already a little bit, but in terms of transitioning a musical to a play, why don't you think you see this more often? I think that it, we're we're getting a little dangerously into some of my uh, my picks for later, so I don't want to do what I usually do and ruin something. Okay. So um, we're getting kind of close to it again. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna soft pass on this until a little bit later no what do you think about director jim Sharman, dj which is really so honestly like outside of this movie i'm not really familiar with much of his work other than this with that being said however i think that this was done exceptionally well i think it's always difficult to adapt a, a musical a play to a movie setting it is different it's much different being in front of an audience versus being behind a camera and not being able to read off of the audience's laughter or body language or things like that. So I think he did a great job. Again, like I said, I'm not familiar with the rest of his work. Sorry about that. Sorry if you really like him. He's a stage director. He's oh. he's associated with over 70 stage productions. I know, I know. So in keeping with Tim Curry and the actors Little Nell and Richard O'Brien, he was brought all coming from. So we have a stage director also making the jump to movies as well. To movies. So... O'Brien also wrote, produced a sequel called uh, Shock Treatment. Yes. Have you seen this? I have, yes. Can you tell me about this one? Because I haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not going to be able to neatly wrap this up for you, but very vaguely, it, it happens after the fact, and it's kind of um, 
not really that related at all. None of the cast comes back, None right? None of the cast comes back. An element that is kind of hinted at in Rocky Horror that is then kind of picked up and taken to an extreme point in this uh, in shock treatment is reality TV. Specifically, I'm talking about when they're in the bedrooms and they're seeing into other people's rooms as they're either having sex with Frankenfurter or whoever else it may be. It's that, like, times a lot. So how is this a sequel? I honestly don't know. And it's, it has not gotten good reviews. A lot of people don't like it. It's... Um, yeah, it's there are some issues with it. But with that being said, I do think that shock treatment was ahead of its time in that it's dealing with issues of reality television and you couldn't really appreciate it when it came out, not until much later after the real world and things like this come out. And we, so it does not help make more sense of Rocky. Or no, absolutely not. Dang no. it. That's what I was looking. I was coming no. to you. I was coming to you for, <laughs> for hope to clarify that. So, no. Nope. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what do you think about what do you think about Jim Sharman as a director? I mean, this is definitely a very interestingly shot movie, uh, but it's also fairly simplistic. So I'm, I, I, I ugh, gosh, I have a hard time really giving much commentary on it just because it's such a unique piece. Um, I, I don't mean to cop out on this. I just, uh, it's just one of those things where without maybe seeing some more of what he does so I can pin you know, this is something he likes to do, or that's something he likes to do, or this is what he really adds to it. Um, in this vacuum, I have a hard time really commenting on it. I criticized him initially for saying that his storytelling was bad, but then I got to stop and remember that that is not his fault. That's the music. The musical's already written, the play's already written, the play's loose structured, it doesn't, it's maybe nonsensical. And so that's not his fault. In fact, I, would, I actually went back and I gave Sherman a lot of credit. I like the look of when they go to the other planet. It does feel like you're on stage because they're literally on stage at one point. And I do like the pool and some of the, some of the I would call them stage tricks that are being filmed. I liked that a good bit. And so I liked the look of this. The castle was cool. And then there's this abrupt change and then he's taking you to another planet. And I, I gotta give him credit for that. So it's got style, even if the music and the play and the story fail you, Really, we can't really fault him with any of that because as a director, that's not under your control here. Uh, a little bit different than a normal production. And so I'm going to give him credit for landing with style in the field because it feels creepy when you want to feel creepy. Like, you want to be off-put at times. You want to feel uneasy like Brad and Janet at some point. Like, wait, there's murder involved here? And so i, I got to give him credit there. So, uh, And then also I picked up on the director's love letter to science fiction and horror. The little red lasers coming out of... Uh, Riff Raff's gun and stuff like that uh, is definitely a callback to B-movies as well. Editing. When Barry Boswick uh, pounds his fist on the table during the dinner scene, he accidentally pounds the hand of Susan Sarandon. She was angry at this, but then later on uh, she steps on his, on his foot with the spike of her heel. Both of these are still in the movie, so you can find those. So we're in 1974. What's, what's interesting about the beginning of this movie, DJ? Well, so if you go to Wikipedia or IMDb and read a plot synopsis for this, they tell you that it takes place in early to late November of 1974. I disagree with this because early on when Brad and Janet are in the car riding to, to meet their, their friend, we hear Richard Nixon's resignation address to America, which occurred on August the 4th, 1974 at 9 p.m. at night. Interesting. So uh, what do you think the significance of that is? Just Brad's a square? 
I think, I mean, yeah, possibly like alluding to kind of his, maybe his, uh, his political leanings, maybe also alluding to kind of the end of an era, whether it be like the actual administration itself or the 60s are finally over in terms of what that represented as a, a moment in time. I mean, we had a president assassinated, we had free love and sex, we had all these like crazy things happen in America. It was truly the coming of age for this country. And now we're in the 70s and we're about to go into the energy crisis and all these other crazy things are going to happen to us. And it's going to get real. Absolutely. Brian, what did you think about the Bray Studios in Oakley Court, uh, the dilapidated country house? Yeah, I think it's perfect. I think it fits right in with uh, over at Frankenstein Place. I felt like that song especially really did a lot to set the mood for the uh, more horrorish Hitchcock-ness of the beginning of the movie um, before some of the more pizzazz took over. It's it's actually my favorite song from this just because it was it was taking something that could have been made eerie and scary and making it, you know, musical, which I feel like automatically lightens the mood and feeds better into Time Warp. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I dig it. The Oakley Court is in Windsor, England, and uh, it's the same location that was used for Brides of Dracula in 1960. Now uh, now the screaming starts in 1973. The Old Dark House in 1963, and Murder by Death in 1976. So this is uh, now a luxury hotel, so you too can go there and do the time warp again yourself. It's good old Murder by Death. Yeah. Uh, any atmospheric comments, DJ? I just said set in a spooky castle, but the interior appears much more inviting and modern than the exterior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least once you get out of the entryway. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I like that the church is a absolute flat set. I was watching the commentary on this one, and uh, it's really ghetto. And they could only shoot it from straight on. Like oh it, it, It's like a tilted up. And so when you're in the church also, the room's really tiny when you stop and like look at it. So again, that's a, it's, a, it's stage direction from Jim Sharman coming through here. Rather than finding a church and really shooting it there, uh, it's, there's some small scale tricks there and so the set builders forgot to put on an extra door uh, in the lab uh, set as well thus dr scott had to crash through the wall on his wheelchair so that's another fun little thing so i I was wondering i was like that's a very looney tunes moment what do you think about the look of what they were wearing dj well i love the costumes like i mean obviously brad and janet are your typical squares so they're just kind of like very straightforward as we meet them, however, most of the movie they're in their underwear. Plain white underwear. Plain white underwear. I want to know if Brad's character has a prosthesis in his pants or something because there's a monster there. Maybe that's why he got cast. Like. I don't know. Jess swears up and down that it's it's fake. She was it's like, fake. Just no, yeah, she was I like mean, that stuff. I'll also say that that is the scariest part of this movie was his underwear. <laughs> I mean, if he like, that's the most horrifying pair of underwear. Yes. And if he gets an erection, he's going to pass out. (laughs) Um, But I mean, so more costumes like uh, Frankenfurter. I I always just look at that character and I'm like, I want every piece of clothing. Like the original corset and underwear with the, the shoes is beautiful. The jacket he wears to dinner is really nice with all the medals and things on it, all the trinkets. There's also another kind of uh, a black kind of, uh, bell like sleeve kind of top he wears love frankenfurter's outfits yeah he's uh the big hair especially the, like yeah. it's just like this bigger than life kind of component and uh to his character the lab 
costume was off-putting. Oh, yes. Like, when, when he needs to go full-blown off-putting and creepy mad scientist, he uh, somehow that that that's a big change for the character when he puts that on. Perfect for murdering it. Yeah. Oh, fun fact fun fact on that one um, there is a triangle on that costume over his heart which a lot of people have kind of read into about uh, in Nazi Germany uh, homosexuals in the concentration camps wore a triangle upside down triangle over their heart and this one is right side up oh fighting back good detail catch there Brian what do you think about the look of things once we go into outer space They're, we're turned into statues and then we come out and now we have clown makeup on like everybody's got white face you know exaggerated features and uh everybody's wearing lingerie whether it be susan sarandon barry boswick or even dr scott i don't know i was just kind of running with it at this point (laughs) (laughs) i I was just like all right sure why not i would say that this is probably the point in the movie where jess and i were uh not being the most uh studious watchers and i don't mean to say that we weren't paying attention I just went a little mystery science theater at this point, and I was kind of just doing my own thing. Well, I take it that just this is Frank's in charge, or Frank is in charge, and that this is his posse, and that this is how you should dress your part of, like, these are the uniforms of my, you know, my posse or my crew or, you know, my underlings, however you want to put it. I do find it odd, though, that Riff Raff and Magenta were never dressed this way, and they were under him as well. And while we're on it, I can't figure out the meaning of why Magenta and Riff Raff are the ones that kind of pull a Judas or a Brutus and kind of end up... You say Jakku. Yeah, it seems odd to me because I was, I was talking to DJ earlier. I th- really? I mean, Frankenfurter's a d- I mean, he whipped him. There's no doubt about it. But what I'm getting at is... So Frankenfurter represents uh, sexual liberation to me. Like he takes these squares and he invites them into this world... And this wild, crazy orgy world, he's creating people for pleasure and all this world. And and he has these rules and stuff like that. And these guys are from his home planet as well, but they're the ones who turn on him. And I, I that, that was the part of it that made me confused. It was almost as if to say the establishment's going to put you down, but it wasn't Dr. Scott doing it. It wasn't. It wasn't Barry Bostwick turning on them and saying, like, I'm going to I'm going to stop this. It, the fact they were lured into this world. And it was his own guys who did this. So what makes me wonder, without saying, like, was Dr. Frankenfurter an outcast from his planet? Did he come to America to behave this way? And his own people uh, went with him, but then realized that they, this, this monster's gone too far? I, it's, it's all... Am I reading too far? I, I, I'm thinking too much again, aren't I? I think so, yeah. But, like, I mean, that's, that's one of the dangers of this movie is that I feel like it is kind of like a Rorschach image where they give you just enough to read into and you can kind of fill in the blanks and go from there i mean we could also say frankenfurter represents capitalism and its co-opting of sexuality and that it's it's an identity that can be bought and sold to you and you know all these other things like it's it's just it's never ending interesting but he did abuse them and uh riffraff does make a point to say he was mean to me and i didn't like it so maybe that was simply the reason could be no you, you could be right i mean if you all right all right let's go this direction with you okay so if you know they're all from the same planet frankenfurter murdered eddie over far less than what those two went through so you could say that the aliens are predisposed to murder or you could say that everybody who died had it coming in one way or the other or you can say i mean there's so many different directions you can take with this i wasn't that shocked 
Okay. One interesting thing here is, a, is talking about the effects here. A stunt double was used on a motorcycle scene, for, except for the close-ups where Meatloaf was driving, but a motorcycle was too dangerous, so they pushed a wheelchair rigged up with handlebars for the windshield in front of the camera. And so a stuntman drove the motorcycle, but at one point the bike fell off the top tier, landed upside down, pinning the stuntman underneath it. Meatloaf ran over and lifted the bike off of him. The stuntman did not move for some time. Everybody's flipping out. And the stuntman got up later saying he was okay and just was like messing with you. Uh, not a thing for a stuntman to do. Yeah. <laughs> not cool. But the wheelchair wasn't safe either. The wheelchair hit a ridge at the bottom of the ramp and then sent Meatloaf flying towards the floor, shattering both the camera and the windshield <laughs> as well. He's a big guy, though, so. Look for this. Any moments? Look for this moment, DJ? Obviously, the pounding of the fist at the dining room table. You see this. Susan Sarandon later steps on some people's toes in the dance scene. I mentioned the kind of references to homosexuals in Nazi Germany. Yeah, that's it. Brian, do you have any look for this moments? Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, the one thing I wanted to bring up is uh, Nell is also a groupie in Pink Floyd's The Wall. So another musical, another part where she is hmm. a groupie. Interesting. And, and yeah. she has a wardrobe malfunction, I think, in the movie, and they kept it in there. Her corsets like totally slides down. Oh really? Yeah. I it. Yeah, I was good with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's during um, Mary the marionette scene. Mm-hmm. What my look for this is going to be in Zoolander two, and uncredited Susan Serain and speaks the lines "Touch a touch a touch me, I want to be dirty" to Owen Wilson's character. Uh, it's a direct reference to Rocky Horror. So, superlative time, my favorite time. DJ, are you ready to hand out some awards with Let's us? Let's do it. MVP. Tim Curry. Like how how could you not? It's true. Brian? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> there's just, there's not a there's not really another option for this. It's his third time on the show and it's my third time giving him a big award here. So MVP goes to Tim Curry. Boom. And best supporting actor, DJ. I said Susan Sarandon. Interesting. How come? I did knowing what I know about the pneumonia and just her health issues, like I thought she did a good job, so I was like, okay. Okay, yeah, just the, she's a trooper and powered through. Fry, what about you? Best supporting? Uh, I also went with Susan Sarandon's Janet, although I have a little asterisk next to it for Columbia's Nell. More on that later. Best supporting actor, I'm going to go with Richard O'Brien. The guy wrote the thing. I mean, he's part of the... I mean, he could easily come away with MVP, but Tim Curry's just so awesome. I, I went with Richard O'Brien for this one. Riff Raff is awesome. He's just creepy, and I like the way he always looks at the, like, you know, lay up the camera with his dark inset eyes and the long blonde hair that's with a bald top. He's just such a creepy dude. His motions are great, and he kicks off the time warp, which is my favorite song, perfectly. So, Hidden Gem, DJ. I'm going to say Peter Hinwood just because he's pretty to look at. That's a fine choice. And Brian, Hidden Gem. Uh, hidden Gem for me is completely empty. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Apparently I missed one. I'll uh, reacquire Columbia's uh, Nell Campbell from uh, Asterix Supporting as my Hidden Gem. I thought she added a lot to this. Um, I'm... Glad that she was actually named in the cast, not just a groupie, because that's kind of what had like Columbia comma a groupie. Uh, but I think she definitely added a lot to this film. I want to give it to Tim Curry for also being the preacher <laughs> in the beginning at the church, but I'm not going to. I got to go with Charles Gray. The narrator is just awesome. I mean, his explanation of how to do the time warp, as well as his interludes in there are great. And every time they, he leaves, they have a different cut transition too that are extra 
extra B-movie quality transitions across the screen. So I enjoy every time he's on the screen. Love him. DJ, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be and who are you putting in their place? I had a hard time coming up with a recast for this. Me too. Like, it's kind of it's kind of difficult. I, I feel like the characters are... You see so many movies where you're like, okay, I could have seen different ways you could have gone with this, but this is such a unique thing that I have a really difficult time just being like, oh, change this. Totally, yeah. Like, And it seems like they're like... There are more untouchables than there are touchables. You know what? One of the things that I was thinking during this is who really needed to be it in this was Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah. So maybe as the professor, I I don't know, but I just remember thinking at one point this needs some like some of those deep tones that he brings to the table. Yeah, I could see that. I literally have in my notes recast Christopher Lee question mark as question mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's like go. Because I mean, you can't recast him. Um, no, no, you cannot touch no that. Yeah. And then I had no idea so Susan Sarandon was in this, so that was awesome. So I can't touch that either. And then he's not really young enough to play anybody else besides maybe Doctor Everett. Uh, maybe I'll just go with that. I like that. That can work. Well. Um, I think this is especially difficult for this movie in particular, but I have to do it, so I will. I'm going to say Chevy Chase as the narrator. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Because I just, I don't know, I just, for some reason I could just easily picture him taking it to a little bit more zany, and I think that could kind of play in nicely with the overall themes going on here, but... Okay, we're going to place Charles Gary with Chevy Chase. I think he'd actually make a pretty awesome Brad, too, actually. I think he could do that. I could see that. Yeah. Brian... Recast. Uh, my recast is going to be uh, Dr. Everett V. Scott. I would like him recast as uh, Christopher Lee. Ooh, fun. I'm going to recast Susan Sarandon. What? I know. Yeah, I, I was afraid that you guys weren't going to like that. Um, I don't <laughs> think she's as vocally gifted as the rest of the cast. And and it does show. And Pneumonia. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. And while she looks the part, and she definitely has the timid nature about her, I felt like she was not in the same vocal league as Tim Curry and Barry Boswick and and uh, uh, Richard O'Brien. Little, I just I felt like she was the one who just didn't have the vocals. And so with that, I'm gonna reach for Anne Margaret. She is she is five years older, but she's a very pretty lady who would also do a really good job at this. Uh, you might know her from uh, Grumpy Old Men later. She's the hot senior citizen older woman as they, the, the Grumpy Old Men fight over. But also back in the day, she did, uh, she did some Elvis movies. She did Bye Bye Birdie. But she also did Tommy, which is a rock opera. And that's why she came to my mind as well. She sang pretty well in that as well. So Anne Margaret, best shot, DJ. I like the wedding scene at the beginning with this whole kind of allusion to the American Gothic painting. No, that's yeah. Good. Brian, what is your best shot? Best shot is going to be basically everything with Meatloaf. I loved all the close-up visuals you got from the motorcycle scene and then his eventually an untimely death. I'm going to go with that as well. The murder scene. The low point of view with the fog and as Dr. Frankenfurter steps towards the screen with that scowl on his face. It's intimidating. It's good. And I want to give a uh, shout out to the lips on the black screen. They're supposed to be red, not yellow. <laughs> I, I that's that's just a great way to start the movie off. Best scene, DJ. The pool scene. I just I like it when they're in the water, kind of dancing and kind of flailing around, singing. 
And what about you, Brian? Probably the time warp dance. That's a good choice. I mean, that that whole part, especially where it keeps uh, cutting back to the criminologist, that was easily the most fun. I'm going to go with the dinner scene that then turns into the hijinks going up, you know, with the, you know, them pursuing as Janet's running from Dr. Frankenfurter at the table, the unveiling of Eddie's body. I just, that's a great scene. And the director didn't tell people that that was going to be there. So that was genuine Hmm. surprise on a lot of people's parts. So good job on, on the director. That was genuine surprise. Change one thing, DJ. I don't, uh, I mean, I, I, so I wouldn't change anything. I just want a little more clarity. Why are the aliens there? Why are they interested in creating new life? Like, I just I just want to know. Like, please tell me. That was mine as well. I need a motive. Yeah. Like, why did he come here? Just simply that. What about you, Brian? Oh, my one thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. This is what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, my, my biggest issue with this. And you guys got so dangerously close to it twice. I, I, I can't stand lip syncing. It drives me nuts. I would have loved to... I, I don't care how good or bad their vocals are. I would have loved this to actually have been sung. It's like watching bad dubbing for language film. I just... I don't know. That It just... that That's... It's a irritant of mine. Okay. DJ, if you, what is your best quote of the movie? I see you shiver with anticipation. <laughs> and what about you, Brian? It's not easy having a good time. Even smiling makes my face ache. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfectly delivered, and that was mine too. Good, good impression. It's time to rate this movie on a five-star scale, half-star intervals. DJ, what would you give the Rocky Horror Picture Show? I'm going to say 4.5. 4.5? Yeah. And it's the incoherent story that's yes. docking it for you? Yes. Yeah. What about you, Brian? I'm going to give it a four and it took a rewatch. It it was, it was initially going to get kind of a low rating for me just because it seemed so, I mean, you can have wacky, you can have wacky for wacky's sake, but there was just so much going on and it was a lot to, to really digest all at once. But like I said, once I had a chance to, to let it settle and then rewatch and then the rewatch was the UK version. So um, I don't know. I uh, I kind of settled on it, and I can I can fully respect this film for for nuances, even the ones I've yet to to glean. I'm with you, Brian. I was gonna my first time watching it. I don't think I took it as anything more than shock. The second time I watched it, it was confusion and disappointment, maybe with not getting it. And somehow this clicked this time. It's just fun, and I'm gonna give it a four as well. And you know the story frustrates me, but I just love the music. And I've, I've, I've now really connected with the music in a way that I will probably return to it multiple times. And I just, it's just so much fun. And I think it's just fun that there's that much enthusiasm for it. It's an institution now. So uh, mm-hmm. I'd love to see I'd like to see a stage performance at some point. Brian, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. Let's go to the wild, wild west. The wiki wild west. With iron, giant iron spiders. No giant iron spiders, but we have three good choices nonetheless. Option number one, 310 to Yuma from 1957. Broke small-time rancher Dale Evans is hired by the stagecoach line to put big-time captured outlaw leader Ben Wade on the 310 to Yuma train, but Wade's gang tries to free him. Option two, Young Guns from 1988. A group of young gunmen led by... 
Billy the Kid becomes deputies to avenge the murder of rancher who became their benefactor. But when Billy takes their authority too far, they become the hunted. Option three, Tombstone from 1993. A successful lawman's plans to retire anonymously in Tombstone, Arizona are disrupted by the kind of outlaws that he was famous for eliminating. There isn't a choice here. Tombstone is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Tombstone in big, bold capital letters. Well, we'll come back and do it again then. We'll do Tombstone. So, DJ, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So you might not hear this on the final cast. I'll edit my, I'll edit as much as I can. But little Grant Man has probably made a lot of, a lot of his uh, cameos on this. So there's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of baby crying. So uh, thank my wife Mary for, for doing baby duty tonight. He's a, he's a fussy, fussy little man tonight. But thank you all the listeners for listening. Remember, all the Lord's Days and Nights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Those iTunes ratings really help us get the podcast distributed to other people. So it takes 30 seconds, and we really appreciate it. Give us a like on Facebook. Tell us what you thought of the movies each week. And follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to go into more detail or if you want to be on the show. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other. And watch more movies. Brian? Masquerade. Paper faces on parade. Masquerade. Hide your face so the world will never find you.